Hi, this is Heidi Heitkamp, and welcome back to The Hot Dish, comfort food for rural Americans. Today, we have a really interesting lineup. We'll be talking about everything from baseball to Iowa politics and the fight for democracy in rural America. Our guests include David Pepper, the author of a new book called Saving Democracy, J.G. Scholten, a rising star in Iowa politics and on the baseball field, and Sister Simone, my favorite nun who is on a road trip across the South to hear what's on the mind of Southern rural Americans. So Joel, another episode of The Hot Dish. You know, when I'm on this with you, I realize you're pretty good at what you do. And that'll probably be the first or last kind of compliment you ever get from me. Well, you know, I'm 61 years old, and uh, that would be the first compliment I've ever gotten from you. I mean, let's just be honest about that. But I, I have to tell you, Heidi, it is fun working with you and on an equal level. You know, I mean, I've interviewed you on my radio show so many times, and uh, basically that's when I get up and I go get a pop or I get a water or something like that. Because all, all I do jerk. is say, how you doing, Heidi? And then if I got to go to the bathroom, I'm gone. It's no big deal, man. You are such a jerk. So um, it's interesting. Politics are heating up. Obviously, the Iowa caucus is around the corner. You know, I've been saying for a long, long time that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. Maybe I'm going to hedge my bets a little bit. What do you think? I mean, you talk to Trump fans every day, Joel. You, do you sense that they're getting weary, that they're moving on? that maybe there isn't that kind of explosive ability that he has to deliver votes in rural America? You know, I don't. Uh, I think they're still there for him. They certainly are in the mood to defend him. I think they they seem to me to want to want to nominate a man who wears the same kind of outfit as what his face looks like. I mean, I don't know how he's going to look in orange or not, but I, I will tell you this. They love the guy. They love him. I just look at the guys that are all in on him. And these are guys, Heidi, that have never been politically active. When you ran, they didn't put your opponent's bumper stickers uh, on their pickups. You know what? But they do this guy. I mean, they really do this guy. You know, I, I think there's really only one opponent who's willing to take him on, and that's Chris Christie. And he actually is gaining in the polls. He's getting a lot of uh, buzz, a lot of attention. I don't know that he's going to be the nominee, but He's certainly doing the Republican Party, in my opinion, a favor because he's out there every day explaining why it is that Donald Trump can't be the nominee of the Republican Party. You know, Chris Christie is the guy now. And I know you work with him on the Stephanopoulos show. I know you know him incredibly well. I've only met him once, but I have to tell you, he's a little late to the dance himself. I mean, he is. At least he's talking, Joel. Yep. At least okay. he's not hiding behind a corner. Okay, but yeah, is so. he running for president? Yes, I think so. I think he thinks some fever is going to break. You think he's running for president or hero? You know, I think he he would not parse the difference there. I think there's a lot of people that he talks to every day that are in establishment Republicans who are giving him a lot of pats on the back and a lot of attaboys. But, you know, time will tell. Time will tell what happens in Iowa. By the time maybe somebody else gets traction, Donald Trump may have this thing wrapped up. But wanted to just... Well, well, wait a second. Heidi, one more thing on Christie, though. You say time will tell. Totally agree. But money will tell. Yeah. Well, I think he's got money. You're sure. Okay. Well, then you're right. Then he can, he can be a player, but uh, 6% isn't going to do it. 
And I want to just kind of uh, preview a little bit of what we're going to be talking about today, which is the abandonment of rural America by uh, by people who look like you and I and what we need to do to make sure that we're listening, what we need to do to make sure that we are fielding candidates and that we are actually spending time talking about issues. So um, let's get to the show. This is an exciting segment for me because I have in so many ways explained in almost every organization that I've been involved in in the last five, six years, the importance of state and local action and what's happening state and locally in terms of our democracy. And everybody wants to focus on the United States Congress. Everyone wants to focus on, you know, what's happening in Washington, D.C. and in the Beltway, because that's what gets the oxygen going. But no one's really paying attention as they should to what our next guest, David Pepper, calls the laboratories of autocracy. David, thank you so much for joining me. I want to talk a little bit about what got you interested in the laboratories of autocracy and you know how hard it was to kind of convince people that they need to pay attention to what's happening in state and local governments. Well, thank you. As you know, I, I chaired the Ohio Democratic Party for a number of years. I ran for office myself, including in all, I was in local office, but I ran statewide, including state auditor. In Ohio, state auditor is one of the roles that impacts gerrymandering. And even from that run, I realized no one had any idea what I was talking about when I said that one of my goals was to end gerrymandering. This was in 2010. And ever since, I've really watched closely, as you described when you, when you began the interview, we are so focused on the federal election cycle and the swing states that we have basically accepted not running in so many of these places hard or at all, not running for the offices in so many of these places that are actually the ones that shape democracy itself. And because of that, the other side, the Koch brothers, groups called ALEC, their front line in the attack on democracy are state houses. Win them, gerrymander them, suppress the other side, and push their agenda through those districts, largely through districts we don't even compete in. And we often literally don't run in these places because we don't think they matter in, in our federal swing state mindset. And I wrote the book Laboratories of Autocracy frantically about four months after Joe Biden beat Donald Trump, because even though we were still celebrating that victory and the fact that January 6th wasn't successful, they had already begun to take advantage of their state house monopoly power to suppress the vote once again, to gerrymander once again. So the way I think about it, I have young kids. It's like we're on a soccer field. They are always on offense, attacking democracy where democracy is shaped into state houses, we rarely are on offense and we often aren't even on defense in these places. And then we wonder a couple of years later why we lose, even when we thought we were winning. So I wrote the book as sort of a wake-up call, the Laboratories of Autocracy book. And the book I just put out a few months ago was sort of a how-to. It's called Saving Democracy, a User's Manual. Because once you realize that democracy is under attack everywhere and the front line of the attack is in states, it does empower people to see there's so much more they can do than they think they can do if, if they think it's only about a few swing states. So it, as sobering as it is to see that, that the front line is everywhere, it's in Oklahoma, it's, it's in New York, it's all over the country, it's in Ohio, that's sobering to see that that's where their front line is. But my hope is at least says to people, you know what, 
There's a lot more you can do about it than just sending a check to a Pennsylvania Senate race. There's things you can do at the local level, at the state house level, in your state, again, whether in Oklahoma, New York State, or someplace in between. I think it's interesting because the rest of the country shakes their head or or people wonder, how are we are we really banning books in this country? Are we really, you know, kind of promoting the kind of agenda that reduces access to health care, promoting agendas that I mean, you think about the crazy things and the attacks on people of color and the attacks on people of, uh, you know, transgender people that make the headlines. But behind all of that is state legislatures are doing are literally systematically eroding transparency, eroding rights. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the things that are currently happening in Ohio that really illustrate exactly what you're talking about? What's happening in Ohio is called Issue 1, and their goal is to raise a threshold for citizens to amend the Constitution to 60%. It's sort of the, the perfect example of what I write about in my book. In the first part of your question, you asked, do people really support all that they're doing? The answer is no, they don't. Almost every single position these people have in politics, even in red states, is a minority worldview position. I mean, we saw that in Kansas in that abortion referendum. In Ohio and Iowa, abortion pro-choice sides polls at 60%. They know that, and they know they would lose elections if elections end up being basically referenda on the key items of their agenda. So their goal is through gerrymandering and through changing the rules like raising a threshold of 60% to win a constitutional amendment, let's say to make uh, the right to choose the law of the land in Ohio, Unless they change the rules, they know they would lose. And that's why, again, their goal, and I worry that we don't see their battle for what it is. We are battling in swing states, talking about what we're for because it's generally popular. Their battle is the very opposite. They know their views are unpopular. They need to find a way to do the following. And this sounds extreme until you see that they actually are studying Orban and how he does it. Their goal is undermine democracy enough to lock in a minority worldview into place over time that would never survive in a real democracy where everyone was voting on fair maps. And that's their goal. And it turns out that the state houses of this country are the perfect institutions to do that goal. Why? Because they control every issue we care about, from a woman's right to choose to what's taught in schools, to how we talk and reform guns if we want to, or, or add gun safety measures. And state houses control democracy. They write the rules of who votes, when they vote, how they register, and they can district, meaning they can gerrymander or they can have a fair representative democracy. The bottom line is with the state house's power to both legislate substance as well as lock out the majority view through gerrymandering voter suppression, State houses become the perfect institution for them to accomplish locking in a minority worldview over time. What's your recommendation for advancing democracy by individual citizens in this country? Well, basically, I go through chapter after chapter on, on what everyone can do. And like I said, I hope it's empowering, although sobering. Once you see the battle for democracies everywhere, it does liberate you to see that there's so much you can do besides watching some TV show about Washington or Donald Trump's trial and thinking there's nothing you can do. You know, too often we simply think, well, the parties are going to do it or a campaign is going to do it. 
if we're relying on a campaign or political party to do it, it's usually too late. And they usually are only talking to the most regular voters. We need to talk to the voters who actually have been removed from the process. How do we do that? Every homeless shelter in Ohio should be registering everyone who shows up at that homeless shelter. Every food bank, a a restaurant could be engaging all of its customers to register, to vote early. Again, this is nonpartisan work. You know, Sherrod Brown, I know you worked with him on so many things. When he was Secretary of State, he convinced McDonald's to have a voter registration form on every tray in Ohio. Uh, so there's so many things. That, but yeah, I, here's another one. Every single mayor or county commissioner in this country could be using every public-facing service they provide, health clinics, libraries, you name it, to engage voters that we know are being targeted and purged in those urban communities. So I go through all the ways we could re-engage people because that's a big part of their strategy. On the, another one, though, as you said, we have a crisis of uncontested races. 50% of the Tennessee Republicans who voted out the two Justins did not even have an opponent last year. So the gerrymandering is obviously a huge problem. We have to fight that however we can. There are ways to do it. But even worse than gerrymandering is, then, is when we then decide, well, we're not going to run any of these places. Their extremism is being run through those uncontested districts. And when we don't run, the lack of accountability these people feel goes on steroids. So there's a lot to it. We have to create an entire infrastructure that says to people, we value running everywhere. Right now, our infrastructure says we value you running in a swing state or district for federal office. And that's pretty much it. And so, of course, no one's running in all these hard places. So there's bottom line is there's so much we can do on all these things, especially once you realize that your effort where you live is actually the most important thing you could be doing right now beyond watching some swing state far away from where you are. One of the things that I I do want to mention, because it is a growing concern, so much is happening for and against candidates who step up in unpopular areas. And by that, I mean their kids get arrested in school, social media becomes brutal, and in fact, in many cases, their physical safety is threatened. And so we have let the bullies take over, is my point. And if we don't step up, even if you're not going to run, even if you, you have no interest in running, you should be part of that protection network for the people who do run. Yeah, I completely agree. Running is not for everybody. But what I put in here is take ownership in your district that somebody runs. And whether it's not you, because it doesn't make sense at that point in your life, Make sure someone does and then support them. And, you know, we need to, to your point, we need to rebrand what running is. Running itself in a world where democracy is being attacked through unaccountable and unchallenged districts, running itself is public service. If you don't win, you're still doing public service because every single day of your run, whether it be at the Ed Board interview or the fact that you're knocking on doors, explaining what the other side's doing, every bit of it. Is public service, it's transparency, it's accountability that they otherwise never face. You know, David, you make so many good points. And, you know, there are points that I've been making since I left the Senate that you can't ignore the places where we live, where it's a little tougher, where we used to elect Democrats and don't anymore because we've basically become nationalized in our view and our in our investment. And we've lost the ability to 
help people when they do put their name on the ballot. Now, I know that that the DNC is running the dirt road Democrats. We'll see how that plan kind of shapes up. But we can only learn from each other. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I want to thank you so much for raising these issues so clearly and articulately. Thank you so much. Really honored to be with you today. Hey, we're going to be joined now by a guy that's basically living my dream. J.D. Shulton is, uh, well, he's on the, the board of one country. He's a professional baseball player playing in the Netherlands. He is in the Iowa State House. And quite frankly, I have no doubt he loves to hunt too. Uh, so let's bring him into the conversation. J.D., good to have you on the hot dish. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, get ready. Break my heart. Tell people why you're in the Netherlands. So uh, I'll try to give the short version, and that's basically I started playing baseball a couple of years ago after a little bit of a break, and I found out my body's still holding up. And after last season, I trained really hard and ended up uh, finding an opportunity to play professionally over here in the Hofte class, which is the top class not only in the Netherlands, but in Europe. And so uh, I've got a save and a win already, and uh, we have a big game coming up here shortly. So you're a pitcher. I mean, how does it go in the Netherlands when you got to brush somebody back, when you got to throw one right at the nose? Uh, well, I'll say this. Uh, it was a weird experience. I got, uh, I now, even though I just got here midway through the season, I lead the league at box. I got five box <laughs> called on me. It was, I, I balked four runners in. <laughs> <laughs> in, in the first two innings of my first start. And then I didn't get touched after the the second inning. So I ended up getting the win, but it was the most bizarre thing I've ever experienced in my life. But uh, it was all good. Well, tell the catcher to let one slide by every now and then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Send a little love their way. Now, folks, at the same time he's doing all this, this is a man who's serving in the Iowa House. I mean, think about that. Local politician. I mean, I served in the state Senate, so I know exactly what he's going through with a much smaller base of population in my district. Rank how you feel the the legislature in Iowa is now versus where it was 15 years ago. You know, I was looking over some of the arguments they had in the early 2000s. And I mean, you had stuff that impacted people's lives on a daily basis of in trying to improve people's lives. You know, that's what Senator Walt Wellstone in Minnesota always used to say is politics about improving people's lives. This legislative session was not about improving people's lives. Everything controversial was passed just strictly on Republican votes. And you looked at where a lot of these bills came from. They're not coming from Iowans. They, they This is a national plan. And whether it's a school voucher plan that was pushed by Betsy DeVos's group, whether it was uh, child labor laws pushed by uh, a billionaire down in Florida. You know, we just bill after bill after bill that was was controversial was not coming from Iowans. And I think that's the the thing that gives me optimism is that we're going to come back as a Democratic Party in the state of Iowa because we're talking to people where they're talking to their national folks. Iowa State Representative J.D. Schulten is our guest and, of course, professional baseball player. I'm still jealous. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what did what did Governor Reynolds do to tick off Donald Trump? I mean, <laughs> you, you know, he's running around the country saying the reason she's there is because of him, which 
near as I can tell, the world is here because of him, if he could take credit for that. But what did she do to tick him off so bad? I mean, if you can't absolutely endorse him right away, he's going to go after you. And that's what we've seen. And the thing that I was really, really surprised at, though, was the amount of, even before DeSantis even launched, the amount of elected officials endorsed his, technically they endorsed his PAC. But I I just, I was shocked at that. Uh, I I don't have the number in front of me, but, uh, and for him to be doing so awful, I mean, I don't really hate to see it, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you know, he's a baseball player. He, He played at Yale. And here's a story that I think really defines who he is as a person. When we had, when he would have long toss, instead of telling his partner to go back or anything, he just threw it over his partner's head and, and make them go chase the ball. Really? I mean, pure selfishness. And, and you get to see that through his politics too. And so I, I don't feel bad for him uh, slumping in the polls. What, what's, what's the media like in Iowa? Because uh, I'm curious, in a lot of these rural states, you know, when you want to get word out and you have to punch, and the only yep. way that you can punch is to let the public know. Uh, and yet the media, as it is in North Dakota here, with the biggest media company in North Dakota, the owner is, you know, a little bit further right than Attila the Hunt. I mean, <laughs> what's it what's it like down in Iowa? Yeah. So I just found out today that the Sioux City Journal is closing their building. So now all employees work from home. I read that. And this is after they're only going prints on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays now. And I mean, we're a, in the metropolitan area, 140, 150,000 people, and we can't sustain a, a newspaper. It just, it's very frustrating. And then we had one of our, uh, we have three stations, TV stations, and one of them, uh, which I believe is Sinclair owned, is now only doing national. They're not doing any local news. It's all national stuff being pumped in. So we only have two stations that are now doing that. And then the radio station, which used to do AP news is now 10 hours of, I want to say Hannity, but uh, they actually, they tried to pitch me that they kicked Hannity off because he wasn't getting good ratings, but, but they replaced it with just another Republican talking point person. So, um, so whatever, but, uh, but that, I mean, that's, that's where we're at. And so one of the things that I'm really trying to focus on and what I want to do in Iowa and across uh, the Midwest is we have a lot of places, like we have 22 talk radio stations in the state of Iowa. What are we going to do to talk to voters who are listening to that? Because the majority of the, the local media markets, they listen to one station uh, on, on radio, on the, in the, the stores and, or at the, the co-op or wherever they're at. And so if we need to find a way to get the Democratic message in there somehow, and that's one of the things I'm looking to, to focus on. Well, I mean, that's what I do. I'm a talk radio host in a very, very conservative state. And we're able to bring it in as number one. And the reason is, is we get both sides to listen to us. Now, that being said, what we really need to focus on, it would seem to me, is people from my side of the aisle not being afraid to come on. They're afraid to come on and, and take somebody on. And we just saw uh, Newsom do that to Fox News. I mean, the more of that, the better. And you appear to be that guy. So I want to thank you, man. Yeah, no, I've I've done my share when I was run for Congress, going on these radio stations that I probably was the only Democrat they've talked to in a long time, and I was not afraid to to bark back when I had an opportunity to, so and hold them in check. Well, one last favor, okay? I I want you to bring me back a hat. 
Oh, just bring me back a hat. That's all I want. Since you live in my dream, I want to be able to wear that where people are going to sit there in the manor VFW hall while I have a beer and say, who the hell is that? So, okay. Absolutely. Deal. <laughs> J.D., you have fun, man. Don't be afraid to throw that high, hard one, okay? <laughs> I've never been afraid to hit somebody. <laughs> Take care, man. Our next guest, I'm so excited to welcome to our podcast. It's Sister Simone Campbell, who is somebody that I admired from afar, who walked right up to me in the United States Senate, stuck out her hand and said, are you going to support food security for poor people. And I said, sister, absolutely. I do whatever a sister expects. And so I want to welcome a joyful human being to our podcast, but a human being who finds joy in doing really important work. Welcome, Sister Simone. Oh, thank you for that warm welcome. It's really great to be with you. I want to start out by talking about advocacy as a member of the sisterhood in the Catholic Church and the difficulties of doing the kind of work that you're doing um, under maybe constraints um, within the Catholic Church. Oh, right. Well, Heidi, as you know, I'm a sister of social service, and we were founded a hundred years ago in 1923 in Budapest, Hungary. And our founder was the first woman in the Hungarian parliament. And what she knew was that the Catholic social teaching, the teaching of Pope Leo XIII, the Pope was saying that we have to put our faith into practice. And in our current world, that means entering as well as into the social work, into the political realm. And so part of my joy is being a sister of social service that has this long history of political engagement. So it's really at the heart of who we are, and it certainly it's created a bit of passion in me for this work. Coming out of the work that you did uh, lobbying on food security, I find it so intriguing that you now have transitioned into dialogue, into actually going places that a lot of people don't go to have conversations that a lot of people don't want to have. And so I want you to talk a little bit about your rural tour, what you learned on that, and then we'll put a shameless plug in for the publication that OCP and you collaborated on. But can you just talk about why you made that transition from walking the halls of Congress to getting in a car and driving around and doing really many focus groups in rural America? Doing politics, what we know in a democratic society is it depends on the folks who elect our representatives. And so what I was seeing in the results of uh, various elections was a real polarization between urban or the coasts and rural America. And when we at the organization that I led at the time, when we looked around the office, we realized we were all city folk. And we had no knowledge of the real reality of rural America. And so it was easy for us to, you know, talk as city folk what you ought to do. But until we knew the reality and what Pope Francis calls the encounter to meet people who think differently and discover the background is we cannot be effective advocates in, on any topic that crosses urban-rural divides. 
So that was why we went on the road, was to educate ourselves. We did, what, 17 roundtables in 16 states and in various parts of the country. And I would usually start the roundtable with, okay, I'm a city girl. What do I get wrong about country living? And it was a great education from there. I'll never forget in Poetry, Texas, this one woman, elderly woman came into our roundtable and she said, I looked you up on the internet and I don't agree with you on anything. And it turned into this fabulous conversation. And by the end of the conversation, she was talking about two of her, I believe it was six kids, two of her sons had committed suicide with drug overdoses and probably intentional, but nobody really knew the anguish in her life of not having meaning, the struggle in rural America to make a go of it on ranches or farms that had been able to support families over generations and were no longer able to do it. We met a lot of anguish. But yet on the other hand, I would end the roundtables by saying, okay, we've talked about a lot of problems. Why do you like living in rural America? And the amazing conversation around community, around being known and seen, around the ideas that you are close to nature, that you can smell the earth in the morning, one one guy said, and to be out in the fields, being able to make something, you know, to facilitate something growing was, uh, gave joy to so many people. It would almost inevitably come up that someone in the group would say, city folk think country people are dumb and uneducated. And quite frankly, that, was really a painful piece and that has urged me to communicate what I found so that it is more understood in the urban coastal reality so that we reweave the fabric of our society. We've got to be more compassionate and understanding of each other if we're going to make this democracy work. Did diversity come up at all? Because the one thing that I think people don't realize is how diverse rural communities are getting. The dairy industry has a lot of uh, new Americans working in it, working in jobs that rural America doesn't want to work in. And so I didn't know if that was part of the conversation as well. In a couple of ways, I didn't realize that I needed to raise it. At at the second roundtable up in Wabasha, Minnesota, We had afterwards, a guy came up to me and said, we never even talked about the community Hispanic people that are here. They've been here 15, 20 years, but we never talk of of them as being in our community. And so after that, then I started raising it. But in upstate New York, um, a dairy farmer brought one of his workers who actually was undocumented, had been with him 20 years, and they both came in tears so worried about their dairy farm. Would they be able to continue because of the price of milk being so low and the challenges that they were facing in terms of both getting enough workers and productivity and the horror that our failure to deal with the immigration reality in our nation in terms of creating systems for people to get in has really devastated much of the farming community. But what I don't understand is why they're not advocating with their Republican representatives to fix our immigration system. And I would throw out on that, that a a big part is they don't want people to know because many of them are undocumented and they don't want to lose them. And so 
if they point out at some of these 8,000, 10,000 head dairies that a lot of those, uh, you know, those workers are Hispanic, somebody might knock on the door and say, look, show me your card. And they don't want that. So they don't want them to know they're there. Absolutely. I hadn't thought of advocacy as being a, a risk of outing them, but you're right. Well, I want to talk about your new project. I think it's fascinating that you've decided now to take your joyfulness and your interest in human nature and and your willingness to listen and to try and understand to the self. So tell us about that project. Well, my holy curiosity is both entire curiosity as well as religious curiosity is taking me to a variety of bookstores this summer, July, the beginning of August, throughout the South to listen to what the perception of our nation is. And this really goes to my obsession with trying to reweave the fabric of our society, because just the way the urban-rural reality is challenging, the North-South divide is huge. And so trying to listen for how community works, how community doesn't work, and how people look at problem-solving is what, I, what I'm about on this tour. Now, I have a book called Hunger for Hope, and so that's the hook to get us into independent bookstores in the South. And so starting in Charlotte, North Carolina, and going all the way to Tulsa, Oklahoma, wandering my way through the South, a couple stops in Mississippi and Tennessee and, you know, all these places that are terra incognita to me. But then what I'm wanting to do is after gathering the data, then again, share that information with urban and northern realities so that we begin to see each other as human beings that care about each other and care about our nation, I hope. Or if I find they don't care about our nation, then I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do, but we'll see. I'll share that too. It's people like you who can open up doors that you're not a politician. You are somebody who cares deeply, a, a woman of faith. And so I think it's interesting you put hope in your book because uh, <laughs> that, that, there it is, the infectious laugh. I mean, yeah, who who isn't going to love you when you walk into a room? You exude hope and joy and and laughter and sense of humor. I just couldn't love you more. And I wish there were thousands of you. Joel has one final question before we're going to ask you to read your poem. Mine goes to our faith, though, sister, which is, you know, faith itself. And I'm not just talking about Catholicism. I'm not. What, what I'm trying to get at is Pope Francis, way different Pope than any of the popes in my lifetime. I love him. I had a chance to see him from a distance speak and uh, one of the best days of my life. That being said, one heartbeat away from our church being completely different. And so, you know, we talk about faith and, and you talk about the consistency of the scripture. I guess my point is, what happens when the church goes backwards and it'll divide us again? Uh, and just like Pope Francis is in many ways dividing us now. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, the thing that I realized, you know, with Pope Benedict, we got in trouble with Pope Benedict for my work on the Affordable Care Act. And I mean, we got called out as being, you know, radical feminist, incompatible with the gospel. But see, those kinds of criticisms only hurt if they're true. Well, that was no more true than, you know, the man in the moon. So it didn't really hurt. But what happened was, as a result of that, 
was it gave us an opportunity, the notoriety, to stay faithful to our mission and then to keep working for economic and social transformation in our nation and our world. So utilizing the notoriety without engaging in the fight is the key. And I think, I, I mean, my community is dedicated to the Holy Spirit. So I believe the Spirit's alive and well and making mischief. And that we, the people of God, have a responsibility for continuing that mischief, regardless of what the leadership does. So would you please just bless us with a reading of your poem that's so powerful? Okay, so this is my poem, Loaves and Fish. I always joked that the miracle of loaves and fish was sharing. The women always knew this. But in this moment of need and notoriety, I ache, tremble, almost weep, at folks so hungry, malnourished, faced with spiritual famine of epic proportions. My heart aches with their need. Apostle-like I whine, what are we among so many? The consistent 2,000-year-old ever-new response is this. Blessed and broken, you are enough. I savor the blessed, cower at the broken, and pray to be enough. Oh, thank you so much, sister. And I will be in touch. I love you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise, likewise. Well, that was fun. It's always fun to work with my sister, whether people believe it or not. But uh, what a lineup of guests. It, it really is what the hot dish is all about, right? It, it's about making sure that people know that we in the rural area are still alive. We're living lives out there, both politically and uh, just flat out having fun. And I have to tell you, Heidi, I had a good time today. Well, amen. Thanks so much, Joel, for uh, co-hosting with me. And we will have a great program next time on The Hot Dish. And if you want to know more about the work that One Country Project is doing, please go out and take a look. OneCountryProject.com. Lots of great information out there. Lots of great arguments out there for all of you who want to go to the coffee shop and actually have a debate about the issues of the day. See you in two weeks. Thank you.